Now, you know the weird thing about this, Joe? Weird? Yeah, I think this is very likely to go at the beginning of the show, but we just finished our conversation with our guest. Yeah, so which was a great conversation. We know it's going to happen. The <sighs> listeners don't know. It's almost like going back in a time machine, though. Right. Because if we know we're going to put this earlier, it's almost like we're creating time travel. Right. That's pretty weird. I. Why are we putting it first? Why like can't that. we put it at the end? We, we could put it at the end. I, I think it's likely to go at the beginning, though. <laughs> it's been a really long week. We, I, I think I'm going to leave in the part of our conversation where I tell the guest it's been a really long week, and I feel very tired right now. Yeah. But we have a very, I would say, sacred obligation right now because uh, to our listeners. Do yes. you know what that is? I do. Okay, we are going to, uh, we, we got some really great emails from our listeners that we didn't get to last week, and including a blog post uh, about the show, which was fantastic. And uh, I thought it would be good just to go through, um, it, at least give a shout out to some of these. Some of them have to do with topics that would be great to do in future shows. That's very true. We got an email from listener Jonas about um, uh, asking us to do a podcast about the situation for african-americans in the united states um and and what's interesting about this is is uh listener jonas is from denmark um and has found us through a number of different podcasts that he listens to and and so he's kind of interested in in what the situation is with the you know or from the legal perspective i guess um the um uh, the constant you know conflict that seems to you know i think he's thinking of ferguson i think this came about right. the ferguson and yeah, i think we should completely i do think we should have that go ahead i think we should yeah have the show. um the the intensity of of what some people call over policing uh of african-american communities and ferguson as being such a flashpoint in that i mean there's such a rich history here and um it's sort of like uh you know you could imagine multiple podcasts each of Many, 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 many episodes exploring both the historical uh, materials relating to that, the contemporary points relating to that. I mean, it's just such a huge thing. So, of course, we should try to... Yeah, and some of this he raises, like, is it... Um, he says, why, why do police generally suppose that black people are up to something bad? I mean, that's... It seems like a small, almost naive question. It's certainly from the perspective of someone in the United States. But it is... A huge question, and, and I think it, it it involves issues of implicit bias. There's yep. some fascinating There's research about that. Absolutely. And and so um, thank you so much for the email. It's great to know that we've got listeners um, way across the pond yeah. and uh, who enjoy the show. I mean, it's kind of what we, what we hope to do, right, Joe? Yeah, and who, like us, are asking, just asking questions because it can lead to really interesting things. Then there was a fantastic blog blog post that we'll link up on the Concurring Opinions blog, one of the major um, uh, law faculty type blogs, law prof blogs. Um, And that was from listener Nicholas. Um, Should we say uh, his last name since he, I mean, it's a blog post. We're going to link it up, right? Yeah. And uh, so it's Nicholas Georgiacopoulos, right? Right. Uh, At Indiana. And um, he wrote about the Knee Defender um, Barrows saga that As we talked so about many last have. time. I mean, uh, the outpouring of literature on the Knee Defenders yeah. be- continues to grow apace. I, I wish we'd brought this up um, uh, last episode when we returned to the Knee Defender thing, because it, it's a super interesting blog post, and, and I had some thoughts directly about it. But um, uh, So anyway, thanks to... Uh, to nicholas um we should have him on the show sometime that'd be great um let's do it but uh, i thought that was really great we got another email from listener uh leonid is that mm-hmm. right yeah um 
who who does say, yeah, there's too much banter, but it's a small price to pay for interesting and engaging le- conversation about legal thought. And <laughs> Yay, a, little, a little bit of sugar helps the medicine go down. It sure Leonid. does. Sure and, does. And if we cut out all the banter, um, yes, well, there would be people celebrating, but there would be people who said, well, that was the only reason I listened to this show. So <laughs> we, right. it would make we try to sad. balance it out. And and he had some some thoughts. He was one of the ones who emailed who had thoughts that you tried to summarize in the last episode. And, and so uh, uh, in our last episode where we followed up on the Knee Defender um, with Lori Ringhand, uh, we we did a couple of things in that right. episode, Posner's opinion about uh, gay marriage being one, but the Knee Defender follow-up being another. Yeah. And Leonid is really, I think in his message, he's really focusing on what I had somewhat glibly called sloppy coasts. Yeah. Um, and that's a really important point, and we did talk about it last time, and it will be able to bring it up many times in the future, because one thing you can count on, as surely as the sun rises <laughs> in the east, right. is people meant bringing up sloppy coasts. Right. There's right. no end to sloppy coasts. Right. And if I don't want you to bring it up, all I have to do is pay you, right, Joe? Correct. Thank okay. you. Um, <laughs> Leonid also says uh, that, uh, um, P.S., I recline when I'm sufficiently tired or the person in front of me has reclined. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll leave it at that. I'll leave it at that. That's, one out of two ain't bad. <laughs> <What's>, <laughs> well, no, it's the, but the, if the person in front of you, like it doesn't, if the seat's faced, here's another, I just thought of this, We're Joe. not going to go into this I just again. thought of this on the, no, we're not going to because we got a long, we know how long the show is. Right? Because we've already recorded it, really. Right. Um, maybe the seat should face in opposite directions, right? So you, <laughs> you lean back <laughs> against each other. Let the strongest recliner win. Next. Um, and, and next, uh, we got another note from uh, listener Spencer, who... Uh, it, it's a lengthy note. It was really, I think, really interesting. It was about Posner's, um, Posner's opinion and the whole issue of civility. Uh, um, judicial civility, but civility in the doing of law to the various parties and um, and, and in the context of uh, this very emotional issue about um, the treatment of gays in society, right? Um, anyway, I, I don't think we can get into the whole email on this show. We read it and we both, we talked about it. I think we need to do at some point another show about civility, manners, professionalism, all of this comes up and you know it makes me uncomfortable in a way. Mm-hmm. And we, we've talked about this uh, on prior episodes, but I, I think another show about that would be great. Did you have any other thoughts, Joe? The it, one other quasi-feedback point, um, I don't know if you noticed this today, but in all of your, uh, all the many challenges that you've been dealing with, but the, um, so earlier today on Facebook, uh, F- Frank, uh, Pasquale, who's a professor up at the University of Maryland Law School, yeah. uh, mentioned a, interview, a link to an interview that someone did with him about a book of Frank's that's coming out. Yeah, And I said, in connection with that post, that I thought it, this was great uh, interview and uh, we'd love to have him on the show. And he said, he wrote back in, on Facebook and said that that would be great because he's a big fan. Oh, great. So, oh, that's just you know. It, look, if 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 Frank were the only listener to the show, it'd be totally worth it. It'd be it's worth like mission doing. accomplished. Exactly, we do it every week. We do it every week, right? Um, but that's true of all of our listeners. We would change you, the dear title. listener. We do the show for you. We would change the title. It wouldn't be called oral argument. It would be called Hi Frank. <laughs> <laughs> oh lordy! All right. Um, I think it's time to start the show. I do too. Let her let her rip. Let, let her roll. So, Christian, why don't you say a little bit about what, because this is a topic that you had actually suggested for us uh, some weeks back, and so maybe you could kind of 
describe it a little bit? Me? Yeah. I mean, given that you are the one who had the idea, <laughs> that might be helpful. Uh, Matthew's joined us to talk about animal law and the uh, the the way that law treats well non-human animals. And I mean, I think it's a really interesting topic because there are a lot of different ways uh, to look at it. Um, I don't know. I guess we're going to find out about it, right? I, I thought you had been a little bit more particular than that. It, it seemed like the lens was looking at animals as subjects rather than objects. Oh, and I did say already that. Already, I'm getting a heaving sigh from you. No, so no, it's it's been a long it's been <laughs> it's been a long week. Ah, I I, I taught a bad class today. Oh. They were great, but but it's been you know have had a daughter who had surgery in the middle of the week. You know, it's been one of those weeks. It has. You know, one of those weeks. Sure. Um. But it's all better now. But did I have that right? Subject versus object? Yeah. As one lens through which to look at this question about how should the law deal with non-human animals? That's right. That's right. Um, because, well, and there's been the case that you sent me, which I guess we'll talk right. about, mentions that And that, that came shift. out not long after you and I started talking about doing this topic as a, as a podcast episode. Right. And so I thought, oh, wow, that's really neat. Right. And the story about the case mentioned the Animal Legal Defense Fund, where Matthew works. And so... I reached out to Sarah. She connected us with Matthew. So we're very fortunate to have Matthew here. We are we are very fortunate, um, not least of which because uh, I feel like my energy is low and I need and I don't have any of that oral argument ca- coffee right now for some reason. <laughs> we could barely find the equipment we needed to make this thing function. So, so Matthew, we are we're very happy that you're with us today. Well, I'm I'm very happy to be here. I've I've listened to a few of your podcasts and happy to be a guest. Oh, oh that's great. excellent. Um, so maybe um, maybe we should start with uh, with this Oregon against uh, Nick's case and ALDF uh, did some amicus briefing in it, right? Uh, we did at the Court of Appeals uh, stage. We didn't for the most recent Supreme Court uh, stage of it, and that was, I think, largely for strategic reasons the court of appeals actually went in the direction that we wanted it to and and the supreme court granted review so we were a little worried that we would muck things up by being in there and making the the strong pro-animal position so we sort of sat quietly uh on the sidelines for the the court of the supreme court decision Um, but we're happy to see the supreme court affirm the court of appeals on this really interesting question of whether uh each victim of an animal cruelty offense um, is in fact a victim for sentencing purposes yeah this is super interesting and i think it's going to get us into the kind of the theoretical problem that animal law as i understand it is kind of addressing itself to and uh you know the upshot here is i guess there was a a farm or some other some other area where, where a guy had a bunch of horses and and other animals uh, they were malnourished, mistreated. I think anybody would be disgusted by what they saw, apparently. Uh, and there were, I don't know, over over 20, but the jury convicted on 20 counts of, uh, is it animal cruelty? Is that the term of art? No, yeah, animal, second, in Oregon? Second degree animal neglect. Neglect, sub, yeah. Subset of cruelty. Yeah, and be, it's interesting because I know that the older regime used the word cruelty. The newer regime breaks that out into a few different uh, categories. But neglect and abuse. Neglect and abuse. And then there's another one for killing, too, I think. But, yeah, uh, um, the aggravated abuse. Uh, but the, so, the, so the upshot is, you know, there are all these animals who are, who are mistreated, and, and, and the law is, is, has the, you know, there is the statute in the law preventing uh, or prohibiting this kind of mistreatment. And 
is the basic legal question seems kind of mundane, but I think it's actually profound. It's, is this guy guilty of one count of animal neglect? Uh, because that's what he was. He was neglectful towards animals, plural, but plural in a singular way. Uh, and, and therefore we're punishing him on account of kind of the public offense he created by being neglectful toward animals generally as evidenced by the cruelty with respect to these particular animals or is he guilty of animal neglect as to each animal that he neglected and um and this makes a profound difference for him because uh, either he's guilty of one count uh, of this crime and and presumably subject to punishment uh, whatever punishment that uh, doles out or 20, you know, that whatever punishment it rolls out potentially times 20. Uh, so there's a huge practical difference, but uh, which one you choose reflects a certain philosophical difference. And I guess just to tee it up a little bit more, Matthew, you could correct me if I'm wrong and jump in at any point, but Oregon has this statute called the anti-merger statute, which um, in a nutshell s- says that uh, w- when a person commits a crime with more than uh, one victim, two or more victims, uh, that they can be um, held to account for each instance of that crime, a, a copy of that crime for each victim. So, you know, you you murder two people in one crime, you can be guilty of murder twice and therefore subject to the murder penalty uh, twice. And that's true of, of all crimes since anti-merger uh, statute applies to, I, I guess, all crimes, but if there's some exception, it's not important, I think, for us right now. But by the terms of the statute, it uh, applies went to um, criminal conduct in, in, as to which there are two or more victims, and it uses that word victims. And so, the, you know, the, the narrow legal question here is whether each animal which was neglected is a victim. And therefore, the question is, can, an, can a non-human animal be a victim? We know that humans can be victims, but can non-human animals be victims? Uh, Matthew, do I have that basically right? Yeah, it sounds like your dog is is chiming in and agreeing. Oh, as well. She agrees. Yeah, yeah totally. She, so her name yeah. is Darcy. Yeah, she's my, great. My son's just getting home from school, and she sees them out there. But I think he's going around. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and and I think I think that's a, a great summary of the case. I mean, on its face, it's just a statutory interpretation case about what the word victim in the anti-merger statute means, but. Obviously, to answer that question, um, there's some deep philosophical issues that that come up. And the way the court gets at that, there's precedent that says the way you resolve what a victim is under the anti-merger statute is looking at the underlying criminal statute that defines the the conduct. And um, depending on who the harm, who suffers the harm of violations of that criminal statute, that's who the victim is. And so the court looks at the animal cruelty statutes and says, who is it that's injured when these laws are violated? And I think the answer to that question from a legal perspective has changed pretty significantly over the last, say, 200 years. Yeah, I noticed that in the court's opinion. And what I was going to, I was curious to hear your, you know, expert take on this as to whether the court, you know, basically, um, oversimplified or uh or or whether it basically got it right and uh so so it it characterizes these early you know early kind of property focused versions of animal cruelty laws which were less about cruelty than they were about the destruction of someone's property or or treatment of someone's property then to be replaced by i guess i i guess the first statute that that saw animal cruelty as a wrong in itself not related to property was the one in new york um when i forget the year 1800s sometime, isn't it? 
Yeah, yeah. And and traditionally, it has been, you know, a lot of anti-cruelty statutes before about 1860 and even after um, usually had this qualifier um, after animal that was that is the property of another. Um, so, mm. you know, for wild animals or animals that were stray or that nobody owned, um, you couldn't commit animal cruelty against them as a matter of law uh, because they weren't anyone else's property. Um, and in fact, dogs and cats initially weren't covered by most animal cruelty statutes because they were thought to not have any economic value. Their only value was was sentimental, and, and that wasn't the kind of interest that the anti-cruelty statutes were originally protecting. Um, so yeah, traditionally, uh, they were concerned, there's essentially property crime statutes, um, but in about 1860, uh, a guy named Henry Berg, um, who was an activist in, in New York, really kind of revolutionized and, and brought animal interests more to the fore in terms of these statutes. And so New York in the 1860s um, was the first to pass a statute that seemed to depart from this requirement the, that the animal be owned by someone else and shifted it from being about property to being about the suffering of individual animals. And, and um, I don't know that we've completely broken with the, the, the property conception, but certainly animals as, as having uh, interests of their own, I think you can trace to to that moment. Yeah, and it's interesting because as I, you know, it read the courts, you know, read that statute in the court's description of it, it refers to animals being kind of overworked as a kind of cruelty. And, you know, there's this um, almost palpable sense of animals as like working companions. And you, mean, you mean under the old statute? Under the old, well, no, under the, under the New York statute, right? So even after we shift from the property point of view that the only the only injury which is legally cognizable to an animal is one which causes someone to lose money to the new york regime which conceives of animal abuse as a kind of wrong against the public right there's something publicly immoral about this even it uses language of overworking what is it overriding i forget the different words that it uses but or it also includes or, yeah. yeah it also includes words about cruelty in general uh, which seem to be quite broad and then the way the court describes the Oregon regime is that there are a couple more uh, developments beyond that before uh, an orientation, I guess, in uh, that, that's kind of clear in the statute just from its description and, and other statutory, uh, like not description, what the purpose section, you know, the, 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 um, the statute itself like gives its purpose. And I guess there are also uh, bits of legislative history, which pretty clearly indicate that the statute is focused on the interests of the animals uh, themselves. Um, rather yeah, than the, rather than the offense to the rest of society from uh, the cruelty, right? And and that latter point I think is sort of a, a stepping stone in between sort of protection, protecting property and protecting the animals themselves. Um, you know, in between that, you have this concept of protecting animals not just because they're property, but because of the effect on society generally. But even under that approach, um, it's still anthropocentric. It's this the position that. Kant held uh, that we don't have any direct obligations to animals because they're not rational subjects, but uh, we have indirect duties to them because our treatment of them coarsens our um, relationships with other human beings. So that, I think, um, is still insufficient, but hopping from that to this idea that animals suffering matters for themselves, even if it doesn't have any effect on society more broadly, um, I think is an important step. And arguably, the, the criminal law made that move a long time ago, but I think Nix is a, a good 
way of putting all that into focus. You know, there's also, there seems to be in the, in the, in addition to the notion that, um, it could coarsen us by permitting ourselves to engage in or failing to, uh, punish and correct someone who was engaging in this sort of uh, mistreatment of animals. Uh, and I can't remember now whether it's in the, in the next case itself or this essay that, that Christian, you had pointed me to that, that uh, a classmate of yours had written. Uh, this is back in uh, like a 2005 issue of the journal of animal law, but this idea that um, uh, allowing people to engage in this sort of uh, conduct um, threatens the public peace uh, because some people, when they see other others acting this way toward animals, will actually act to help the animal. So that allowing right. this conduct to go on a- actually threatens to disrupt peace. I thought about this today when I was reading this case. Well, go ahead, Joe. Uh, well, yeah. what's interesting is because there, where you're, it's the, this threat to the public peace idea is starting to bri- starting to walk across this bridge. Where you, if you start to ask yourself, well, why would people react that way? Why would they re- react in uh, anger or upset or act to, to to help the animal? And it's because there is a feeling of sympathy and empathy for the animal that it me- meaning a recognition of the animal as a subject. At least that could be part of why they act that way. Yeah, I had a, I have a story about that. That, that so there's sort of a transition in a way, almost conceptually. Yeah, th- this made me think of that. I mean, th- th- that yeah, I was in high school and. We found a dog at some at some convenience store called the number on the tag and and wait and wait and the dog looks you know doesn't doesn't look great so I don't know how long it's been lost or what have you and a guy drives up in a big truck and uh, gets out is clearly angry um, grabs the dog by the collar and flings the dog like cartwheel style up in the air by the collar and slams it down in the bed of the truck and. Um, my uh, a girl that was with us just starts screaming at the guy and i call him a name and tell him that he's twisted and he yells back at the girl gets in the truck goes away you know and i i I hadn't thought of you know this is the kind of thing that i think about it from time to time but um but not all the time but this definitely brought it brought it back and the as i was reading this i was thinking that the the distance between where we were at that point and a kind of violence was really was really quite small um you know if the guy had had a gun or something else it, it's the kind of situation which quickly could have escalated because any person it's kind of like fighting words in first amendment law i mean any person confronted with that image feels almost a visceral you know reaction it's very hard to restrain oneself from right. becoming involved in a way that just escalates the situation now that all speaks as you say to the uh to kind of the an instrumental version of the public morality version of uh of animal protection right that there's a a reason to prevent these sorts of things is to prevent fights among humans basically right and and it's and we want to favor those who would feel obliged to step in on behalf of animals right by saying just you know we're not going to restrain you from stepping in. We're telling other people they can't be cruel to animals. Uh, so but it is in a position that you want to step in. Yeah. But it seems predicated on a recognition that our, a natural response we can have is to view animals as other subjects in need of aid. Uh, it, well, At least that could be one way you develop the idea. Yeah, I mean that that could be. I think I think it's you know it's one where different attitudes towards animals could all point in the same direction. Yeah. But if that's your justification, then as Matthew says, it's anthropocentric in the sense that it's it sees the harm in animal cruelty as 
um, well, at a minimum, uh, uh, kind of harm to other humans, right? It hurts. It makes us feel bad. Right. And we're going to privilege that yeah. feeling bad. by. I'm trying to walk down, a, like, right. what are the steps down the road? And yeah. the I think this could could be a step along the way toward the non-anthropocentric view where you're finally simply trying to protect the animal as a thing worthy in and of itself to do. Yeah. Yeah, no, that was, that's where we're kind of headed. But I, I thought it was important to mark that there's a transitional period, at least as I learned from this opinion and from some other writings, right. where, where we no longer saw animals as property, um, feeling kind of human, economic, and, and physical needs, right? But, um, uh, but as things about which human beings develop feelings and emotions, with their, which are wor- those emotions and feelings being themselves worthy of protection. But that's not fully towards seeing animals as subjects who are capable of suffering and thought. Um, right. uh, yeah. That would be, then, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and I think one of the other problems of framing it in terms of its effect on public morality is that you could sort of circumvent that harm by keeping it private or not, telling anyone about it you know if if someone is abusing their animal in the privacy of their own home there's no other person seeing it um then you're not going to get much purchase with the idea that it's going to you know course in society more broadly and 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 in fact that's kind of the the dark side of that rationale is what it's done to the ways that we treat animals industrially for example so kind of out of sight out of mind for slaughterhouses or research laboratories or things like that i think kind of thrive on this idea that you know as long as no one sees it or or thinks about it um then it's not something that that we need to think about morally could i ask a totally different set of questions about the about this nick's case itself i was fat you know when i started reading it i thought i i lived in oregon for a while and um uh, i worked at lewis and clark law school but which by the way um you know, Pam Frash and Kathy Hessler and sort of great pioneering work in animal law that goes on at Lewis and Clark Law School. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, really terrific uh, people and, and really great stuff. Um, but, you know, I'm reading this opinion and I and it's, <laughs> it's Umatilla County and that's in eastern Oregon. And I think, who convinced the Pendleton district attorney to... Because some, some prosecutor in Pendleton or, or, or uh, you know, nearby... Uh, says, you know what, I want to ask for 20 sentences here. Um, and if that hadn't happened, you wouldn't, this case wouldn't have been teed up, right? So the prosecutor knew to, to, to not simply let it go at a single sentence of animal neglect. Do you know how that all unfolded? Like, how did that happen? I don't know for sure. Um, we have... You know, our organization is divided up into different programs. I'm in the civil litigation program. Ah. Um, we do have our criminal justice program, which is the, the it's run by a former Oregon prosecutor. I can't remember what county he was a prosecutor in, but obviously being a former Oregon prosecutor, he has a lot of, um, I think he can be influential in terms of counseling other uh, DAs about how to frame the charges or the sentencing or things like that. So right. I suspect he was... Um, involved from the beginning, but I don't know for sure. Yeah, because you really have to convince that frontline person, you know, that to, to view it this particular way. And then, the, of course, the trial judge sort of says no. And how did you guys get, in terms of the briefing at the Court of Appeals, how, how did you guys get involved in that? Um, you know, I'm not sure the the logistics of how we got involved. I would guess that 
Scott Heiser, who's the guy who runs the criminal justice program, um, found out if we weren't involved from the beginning, you know, once the trial court decided to merge mm. everything into a single uh, count, um, that that was, you know, obviously something problematic at the trial court level. So um, right. I assume he was in touch with the the attorneys on the appeal and we did an, an amicus brief at, at that stage. Right. Well, good for the prosecuting authorities. I mean, I think it's great that they continue to push the issue. Mm-hmm. I was interested in taking this, uh, um, uh, using this kind of cruelty, or think, thinking about cruelty in this case as a bridge to um, slaughterhouse issues and, and other wild animal issues, which are, you know, I think our relationship to um, animals used as food, animals used in research, and animals in, in wilderness is constantly being redefined and and is in great contest right now and and just looking down the docket on your website as to the cases you guys are you guys are kind of at the front lines of attempting a sort of redefinition or or, you know you know depending on how you frame it like consolidating the the relationship between us and animals that is already in the law um you know so the you know the idea of cruelty in this criminal statute in this case references a you know mistreatment you know you see this word mistreatment abuse neglect um words that obviously are um you know are open to interpretation and call for a judgment about the way that animals should normally be treated um in other words you know there's something about deviation from normality in a treatment of an animal which calls in you know which may call into play these these statutes whereas animals in slaughterhouses are just you know are are routinely killed and there's a different notion of what it means to be humane with respect to an animal raised for food and and slaughtered and that notion of what what is normal with respect to animals that humans often use for food uh that's what people are kind of fighting about now right um and and I, i take it a lot of your work is just trying to increase uh or to use the tools in the law that are already there to increase kind of public awareness of how these animals are treated. For instance, I noticed one case involving better labeling on uh, grocery store eggs um, about how eggs are, uh, are uh, you know, whether cage-free really means cage-free and how uh, hens are kept. Uh, how do you, I just, just kind of open-ended here, how do you think about you know, your role or the role of your organization, is it part of a larger debate about this? Or do you guys think of this in terms of just smaller battles about particular instances of an industrial cruelty or individual cruelty? Yeah. I mean, that's a, it's a challenging question. And I think we certainly consider ourselves impact litigators and that sort of tradition of public interest litigation, um, going back decades. And, um, I think that always involves a tension between trying to get existing laws enforced and trying to fight those short-term battles that might alleviate suffering in the short term, but also trying to have a long-term vision of, of where the law ought to go. Um, and for the Animal Legal Defense Fund as an organization, since its founding, it's always been um, rights-based in the long term uh, and I guess what you might call welfareist in the short term. Um, So, you know, if there's a short term reform we can do that will alleviate suffering or decrease suffering um, within the existing 
framework will pursue that, but in the long term, the goal is to to establish animals as something like legal subjects with personhood and the right to to have cases brought on their behalf and to have their interests considered by the legal system. Have Have you guys talked about how that might work? And maybe I'm jumping too far ahead in the conversation, but have you talked about how that might work in the long term? Because of course there are. You know, I take it one of the concerns in the law about extending standing, um, legal standing to, to bring claims to non-humans um, is kind of the raft of line drawing problems that comes with it, right? I mean, um, which animals, under what circumstances, and what are those rights? Are They, are, they can't quite be identical to human rights, Um uh, especially if you have a broad conception of human rights as like the right to an education or, you know, something like that. It's hard to imagine that you would apply that, say, to a housefly, right? Um, uh, but maybe you would only apply something like it to mammals. And is there, is, is there an underlying right from which the human right to education springs, which is shared but manifests differently in a cow? I mean, do you see what I'm saying? I'm, I'm just wondering what yeah. the... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, it's uh, the line drawing problem is... is the difficult one for sure. Um, and along all the fault lines that you've identified, um, you know, there are some people who say that we ought to focus on the great apes because they are the most like humans in terms of their, um, cognition and things like that. There are others that say the relevant line is just sentience that if you can feel pleasure or pain, you have a right to have those interests taken into consideration. Um, and then others who draw the line down it, you know, life or something like that. And, and thinking about those ethically, um, I think raises different questions from thinking about them legally. Um, so there might be ethical obligations that we're not prepared to, to bring into the legal system. But um, yeah, it's definitely a dynamic conversation. I don't know that ALDF has a poly, policy position on which animals or which rights, um, but it's definitely a conversation we have internally a lot. I think sort of the the bare minimum um, would be something like, you know, chimpanzees having a right to uh, life and a right to be free from torture. Um, but whether drawing the line at animals that think like us is still anthropocentric, um, I tend to think that it is. And so it might be, um, you know, something that we're obliged to do, but it might not exhaust our, our moral obligations to animals or our, or how we want to sort of construct their interests in law. Yeah, and, and taking positions on these things too, I imagine, um, it's the kind of thing that gets other people's hackles up. Uh, you know, if you tell people you're a vegetarian, people who are not oftentimes get kind of defensive about that. Um, because, you know, it, Anytime you do something which is a little bit out of the ordinary, but appears to have a moral basis, and you talk about that with someone who who doesn't do that thing, there's almost uh, a defensiveness because they assume almost an implicit criticism of their normality. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. Like you know, I ride my bike to work, and and I've noticed, especially on Twitter today, I've been noticed there was some there was some horrible bike accident where some biker uh, ran into someone in in Central Park, and oh, among some. Uh, some conservatives on Twitter, this was like a chance to talk about what horrible people bikers are in general or something. You know, it's meaning like, bike, bike riders? Yeah, it's like there's this defensiveness about... Um, biker sounds like Hell's Angels to me. I don't know. <laughs> so when you say biker, I don't <laughs> no, know what I'm you mean. I'm a bicyclist. I okay. don't even think... Yeah, I, <laughs> cyclist, you know what I mean. Uh, um, but uh, there's this is like... 
almost like an assumption that um, someone who who rides a bike must think they are kind of holier than thou, and the rules don't apply. Like, and 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 that kind of uh, 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 you're assuming someone else has a kind of moral superiority, and because of that, you get defensive about it, and then you question the underlying morals, and you find all the ways that they're hypocritical and everything else. So you tell someone you're a vegetarian. Sometimes people's hackles will go. They either will say, "Yeah, I'm thinking about being vegetarian too," or they, or they'll say, "You know, I can never do that," or whatever it is. But usually, there's a, you know, or oftentimes, um, someone will kind of poke and try to figure out all the ways that you might be contradictory. Like, do you use soap? Do you use this? Do you do that? And unless you're 100% pure, there's something kind of wrong with it. Yeah. But that that kind of personal—I don't know if you've seen this too, Matthew—but that kind of personal criticism at a personal level, I think exemplifies kind of the societal struggle in kind of maintaining a public morality about animals in general. Because all of these, what you see in these personal conflicts are all kinds of kind of line drawing problems, the difficulty of adapting an actual lived life to a system of aspirational morals. You know what I mean? Like, uh, uh, you know, we would all like to be compassionate towards everyone else and not cause suffering and, and lift everybody up. It turns out that to live life is to, is inevitably to become disappointed in your ability to do that in, in all kinds of ways. You know what I mean? And yeah, yeah, and, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I, I think, you know, that, that comes from a couple of different places. I mean, I, I went vegetarian when I was 15, which is not when people are at their most politically nuanced or socially sensitive. So, you know, I was a, <laughs> dogmatic vegetarian pain in the ass and so <laughs> you know I, I don't doubt that there are people out there who sort of fit that stereotype that people are responding to when they get their hackles up mm. about vegetarianism or veganism um, because I used to be that person but I, I think that's a pretty small portion of the response I think a lot of it is sort of this kind of recognition of that disjunction between our values and our actions and, and to sort of excuse that we find ways that you know, perfect compliance would be impossible. And so why bother at all? Why bother doing um, anything? Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, you know, well, maybe we shouldn't be uh, ripping baby chimpanzees from their mother so we can study the psychological effects. But, uh, you know, if we follow that all the way down the line, you're going to want voting rights for houseflies. So, you know, <laughs> let's, let's just stick with the, the status quo where it's all humans and only humans. Um, you know, so I, I think some of that is a response to, um, you know, to, to the initial demands and to, it, it can be used as an excuse not to even start. And, it, and you know, there is, um, I think there is uh, certainly raw material in human history to suggest that uh, sometimes when we go about trying to engage in line drawing, even uh, only on the human side of the line, we fall so far short of you know, what the life we would like to have for ourselves morally and the life we managed to pull off. I mean, we're, we're capable of perpetrating some pretty appalling acts against one another. So that might lead you to have less confidence. <laughs> like, we've got enough trouble getting it right on this side of the line. We don't need to try to move the line. Uh, yeah, that, that ultimately, those... that's not an argument that works for, for me personally, but I could see someone making that argument. Yeah, I mean, usually our moral failings are the refusal to expand the circle rather than expanding it too far. Um, you know, and all those problems historically of denying people the benefits of being human beings, even when they are, um, I think is the denial of it, not the overextension of it. And so, you know, there are people 
doing work in, in moral philosophy in the continental tradition who are saying we ought to just abandon this entire enterprise of drawing lines and just sort of be open to ethical demands as they arise, given the context. Um, and I'm, I'm philosophically very sympathetic to that idea. I have no idea how you would sort of bring that into a legal system, which tends to be inherently about line drawing and who has which rights and what personhood. Um, but I think it's an interesting idea that, you know, historically we haven't been very good at drawing lines between the included and the excluded. So maybe we ought to be open to, to ethical demands wherever they arise. But, uh, you know. But it's, 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 it's difficult, though, right? Because um, the, almost inherent in the nature of eth- ethical demands, at least many of them, uh, is that the world is full of trade-offs. And that, you know, maybe when you're a kid, you think, um, I'm either going to do bad or I'm going to do good, right? And, and um, I'll be punished for doing bad and, and people might praise me for doing good, but there are, there, there are clearly bad things and clearly good things. And as you get older, you recognize that even wanting to do good things comes a trade-off. And oftentimes, two good things that we want can't both be achieved at the same time. Um, and so, uh, you know, e- even something that looks like a, you know, a, a, as a, former kind of, uh, you know, environmental activist, I, even things that I wanted environmentally came at a cost. You know, we, not all, um, not all social needs can be met because we have l- limited resources. Um, and so I am concerned of uh, one thing that, that kind of strong lines and, 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 and kind of thick morality built around a small number of, of, um, issues does is it kind of disciplines the human mind about things that are, clearly okay and things that are clearly not okay leaving muddy a whole bunch of other things um but if we were to abandon that for a system that says every new situation is one to be evaluated um ethically in its context and according to its times i wonder if there's just even the human capacity to engage in an analysis of the full ethical trade-offs the full normative balancing that has to happen every time something comes up anew isn't there some value in kind of thick moral conceptions even if they're kind of sloppy i don't know if that makes sense but yeah i mean i i don't know i mean the way i i think this sort of depends on the individual and how they handle those things as they arise i mean for me it helps to have firm lines i'm a vegan and so every time i sit down to eat i don't have to trace everything back and and make a, a new moral decision every time but um, I do think there's something about being kind of ever questioning or, or at least open to, you know, where those hard lines might, might be drawn in the wrong places or, you know, whether we have sufficient knowledge to draw those lines at all. Now, I'm thinking of the kind of thing where, and, and this is not the case because I, as far as I know, the evidence is that vegetarianism and veganism have, say, a smaller carbon footprint than um, than eating meat, um, it, you know, chickens being the lowest impact, I think cows being one of the worst in terms of, of greenhouse gas. And this is just one dimension of things, but it could clearly be otherwise. This seems to me to be contingent about which, whether, whether, uh, um, you know, uh, eating in a way that doesn't harm animals, uh, is better for other environmental values or not, or better for this or better for that. But it certainly could be, um, one can imagine a world in which being a vegan uh, came at the cost of being able to, f- you know, being able to feed fewer people around the world. I don't think that's true. Don't don't get me wrong. I'm just kind of this is just hypothetical. I'm spinning out, uh, or that it came at the cost of increased uh, 
greenhouse gas emissions, which is also clearly false. But um, but the point is that that you know achieving the one end might come at at at, at costs which also have ethical values to them. Um, and and maybe you know in this instance you can take some comfort in the fact that like for all the things that that you care about, it seems like you know this particular diet is is helpful and beneficial. Um, but I, don't, I wonder if the, I wonder if that's the case for all of these different animal issues. Um, I, I don't know. I, am I making any sense, or is this just end of the week? <laughs> yeah, no. I, I, think, I, I think that makes that makes perfect sense, and and I, th- I think you're right empirically that you know in terms of human health, in terms of resource allocation, environmentalism, climate change, um, you know, uh, veganism, and is you know beneficial to all of those things. But if we were to to change that empirically there's sort of this question about uh and that's where you get into some of the interesting rights as trump's question um and i think that becomes a little more salient in um you know perhaps the the animal research context if one accepts that that those that research is actually productive i have questions about whether it is but if we assume that we can um you know run this test and kill this many animals to save this many people, you know, do we do that utilitarian calculus or if we accept a conception of rights as Trump's, um, do we reject that utilitarianism and just say, well, you know, these animals have a right to life. And so, um, regardless of the benefits, we can't justify that ethically. Or like the native, uh, American whaling exception, um, Mm -hmm. you know, where there are native peoples who have a, a long tradition of hunting whales, um, Whales are animals with, uh, at least um, some of them, I, I, I don't know about all of them, but uh, have an amazing intellectual capacity that we don't fully understand, um, and certainly a capacity for suffering, I think, as far as we understand it. Um, so or you, you almost couldn't be uh, higher, maybe, than in the great apes uh, along uh, the line of assimilating them to human beings in terms of suffering and, and a kind of cognition that we understand um and yet the the native american way of life or just native people's ways of life are tied up with hunting these animals in a particular way which is not not quite similar uh to the industrial whaling which has uh, been outlawed and so we have to make uh that seems to me the kind of difficult ethical balance that has to be struck um I don't know how yeah I don't know how you guys come down on that or even if you and I should say at this point that um although you work at uh Animal Legal Defense Fund not everything you say is on behalf of Animal Legal Defense Funds. This is a disclaimer, yes. right? Disclaimer. Yeah. So yeah, okay. Uh, thanks um, but, for saying that. I, yeah. I should have said that to begin with. <laughs> yeah, I, I just I, I assumed We took you, it as red, but it's good to say. Yeah, okay, yeah, it's yeah. always good to say. Um but that seems to me to be a kind of difficult, you know, ethical issue and and it may well be that um as a transitional matter, so too are some of the slaughterhouse issues, you know, that, um, or, or eggs, you know, um, to get really, um, uh, to buy eggs that are, are truly like cage free where the animals are, where the, um, hens are not mistreated. I think it's like, it can be like $6 for a dozen. They can be, or, or more. And you can go to the local, you know, big mega supermarket and get them for a dollar a dozen or something like that. Right. And, and there's certainly a distributional impact among people. So if we move, if we require them all to be, um, cage free and treated in the right way, that comes at a certain cost that eggs would then be 
inaccessible to the poor and you know we'd we'd have this distribution of goods in society which skews towards the rich and and you know i i just see some complexities there um and go ahead yeah i think those arguments are actually the ones being made by the animal rights folks um you know this idea that there is a humane way to produce eggs um falls more in the animal welfareist kind of moderate um position and i think organizations like ALDF, certainly me personally, have that criticism of the idea that you can produce a humane egg or humane meat. Um, and those are, I mean, those are the arguments that I make in terms of um, social justice and, and resource distribution. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think those are very significant aspects of, of, uh, of the problem. There's a really good law review article by a woman named Manisha Decca, who um, is... I think one of the most interesting people writing about animal law where she's sort of looking at how you can synthesize post-colonialism with uh, animal ethics. And she goes into some of these issues of uh, whaling and, and fur hunting and things like that, that I think um, is really productive. I don't, I don't know that I can summarize it in a way to do justice to the argument, but I think there's a way to sort of be sensitive um, to all of those ethical demands. Um, but yeah, I mean, this idea that we can sort of, crunch all the the inputs and come out with the right answer uh, i'm skeptical of and and so you know we all try to do our best and and factor everything in that that our mind can hold at the same time can can you send us a link to that please sure because yeah. we, we like to put things on well christian do, he does all the work uh, put, <laughs> putting it on the show notes uh, uh page of show notes uh that'll be that'll be helpful for folks the series of cases that were filed in new york in december of, of 2013 to try to make this a, a little bit more concrete in terms of a current legal dispute. Uh, the, these challenge to uh, suits filed on behalf of chimpanzees who, were, who are living under certain conditions and to make the claim that the court should take cognizance of these claims made on behalf of these particular chimpanzees in order to vindicate their interest in not living under those conditions. So, you know, can the court... Uh, see that they have standing will it allow these lawyers to sue on their on the behalf of these individual uh, chimpanzees um do you know do you know about this litigation i do yeah uh stephen wise the guy who's the mastermind behind it has been a long time member of the animal law community actually used to be um on the board of aldf was a member for a very long time um he's written some of the main texts on theorizing animal rights under law. So where would you situate that in terms of this this sort of continuing development of of finding the law trying to work through whether non-human animals are subjects in the law rather than objects in the law in, in ways that can meaningfully and and pragmatically be uh vindicated, be worked through. I mean, I take it that that the uh, even in the Oregon against Nick's case, you're still talking about a criminal prosecution. You're not talking, for example, you're not talking about someone who witnesses the the guy, the same guy, Nick's, uh, mistreat his animals. You can't bring a tort suit on the behalf of the animals against him as someone who's injuring them, a civil suit. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, Steve's cases fit... I mean, they're essentially habeas corpus cases brought on behalf of animals. So I think he sees the this as sort of the 
opening salvo in an attempt to to really establish rights for animals under the law. Um, and obviously, the, starting with chimpanzees, the idea is it would be to focus on the the principle that like cases should be treated alike. And so he has a lot of scientific evidence and focuses a lot on the fact that chimpanzees are cognitively similar to humans in a way that entitles them to um, the protections that the writ of habeas corpus is intended to um, protect. So the idea is that, you know, just as you couldn't take a human being out of their environment and, and put them in a cage um, without them having some legal recourse, uh, he thinks the same should be available for, for animals. Those three cases were all dismissed at the trial court level. Um, oh, they've already been dismissed. They have, uh, but they're on appeal. So um, there's a hearing on one of them, I think, in October, and the other's in December, and the other's still awaiting a, a hearing date. Now, how should we how should we think about this? I mean, how should we do this? Because, in, in, when when um, you know, I'm I'm enough of a positivist and and legal realist to to hear just a proclamation that something has rights or a person has rights and think to myself that this is basically a positive enactment, meaning you know that this is a decision that we all make uh, to recognize a certain set of legal claims. And so the move to saying that uh, chimpanzees have rights is has to be expressed further in the form of like, well, what kinds of claims can be brought on behalf of chimpanzees? Because, um, uh, you know, in a sense, in Oregon, all of these farm animals had rights in the sense that um, people who violated certain um, uh, uh, duties with respect to those animals were subject to uh, criminal prosecution. Uh, this cause of action, as it sounds, to say that you have a right and that can be vindicated in habeas corpus is to say that even absent a statute, a judge should be able to determine um, uh, the proper treatment of that chimpanzee and, the, and that some people can insist on behalf of the chimpanzee that those uh, that those that certain duties that the judge will find should um, should prevail, and and so I imagine one criticism um, of of these kinds of actions is that judges are the wrong ones to do this, right? That that even if you are correct, that we should recognize broadly similar basic entitlements to um, um, to prevent suffering in certain non-human animals uh, should exist as in humans, that that should be, we should do that through a statute or, or maybe even a constitutional amendment. Um, uh, do, do you think that the, that the counter argument to that is, is, um, is interior to the law in a way? Is it, is it a difference in like legal theory and understanding, or is it that courts are especially good at recognizing rights where legislatures hadn't? I think it's, it's both of those things. Um, and I guess, you know, the same ca caveat that I can't speak on behalf of ALDF, I certainly can't speak on behalf of the Non-Human Rights Project. But as I understand um, the goals of the litigation and, and the theory behind it, um, you know, I think their view is reliant on a type of judge that is probably becoming an endangered species in its own right. Um, but that's sort of the robust common law judge who is willing to make law on the basis of recent arguments or fairness or kind of overarching um, 
principles rather than sort of saying, well, questions of value are for the legislature. I'm just going to apply the statute. So these cases do arise under the common law writ of habeas corpus, not under a, a statute. So we're not really talking about, you know, what did the legislature intend when it created this habeas cause of action? Right. Um, so it is reliant on, on, on the common law with the theory that a common a judge, um, you know, exercising common law authority can sort of be a little more creative and, and responsive to things that might be um, more philosophical and might not have quite as much purchase in the, in the legislature. And that's, I mean, I can, you know, yeah. in terms of, I'm, I'm wary of making the slavery analogy, but when we look at um, historically how uh, certain once things have become now persons, um, a lot of that does happen through the judiciary um, for all the reasons that, you know, we can get into about discrete and insular minorities and, and uh, the problems of, of leaving, you know, uh, legal consideration up to the will of the majority. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, I can see an argument that, um, uh, that one thing that courts are, are good at is to, is, in a sense, bringing things to the attention of majoritarian, majoritarian bodies, whether legislatures, the people generally, um, that might otherwise be invisible um, to, to the people. Uh, and so, so one, one reason for judges to become interested in, in actions that affect discrete and minorities is that legislatures otherwise might not be moved to consider those things uh another reason might just you know be based in a kind of morality and and um and a conception of basic human rights and and i can see both of those kind of uh kind of in play here um but the, i think the overall goal here has to be um or, or I, I assume to be um, a, a large scale changing of minds and attitudes towards uh, non-human animals, and and so the question ultimately is like, what is the best way to do that? And and sometimes, you know, I mean, it, it's not as though you have to taste change tastes and then expect law to change because of those changing tastes, and that's the only way it works. Because of course, law shapes people's tastes just as people's tastes shape the law. And um, and some may, maybe. Uh, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I haven't really thought about this at all. I'm just talking about it right now. Um, you know, maybe a judge declaring these rights or, or uh, can motivate other people to consider these things and to uh, and may motivate a legislature to make uh, um, either a more nuanced or um, or a broader. I, I don't know. I, I, I'm just trying to think of the. Um, I'm trying to think of what the theory here would be that would support. Um, doing something which is clearly would be a break from the past right i mean uh, this this common law writ i assume has just never been used in this way and you're asking a judge to make uh, to declare a, a pretty sharp change in 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 policy right um n not that it wouldn't be unjustified and i'm trying to figure out whether that's like a, a virtuous use of judging um or a virtuous um kind of judging uh, what it would accomplish. Um, I don't know. Would this actually help the changing of minds or would it, or is this the kind of action that would not? I mean, obviously this has been thought through by the people who are involved in the litigation and, uh, and you don't have to answer at all. if I Which isn't Matthew, right? So we, <laughs> yeah, it's not Matthew, but you know, I wouldn't want Matthew to, to get in trouble with these other people for, you know, it, 
because I'm like, in a way, I'm kind of, I'm not questioning the wisdom of the litigation so much as I'm asking about it. You know what I mean? I mean, I'm not yeah. suggesting that they're wrong about it. I just uh, am thinking from the point of view of were I the judge um, and otherwise kind of sympathetic with the idea that, um, that of course, non-human animals suffer in ways similar to human beings, if not the same. And of course, people should be um, much more compassionate toward animals, just as they should be more compassionate toward one another. Um uh, but I would be very mindful of my judicial role, and I'm trying to figure out if I could, f- if I, if I would find there a kind of a, a reason basis for propo- maybe proposing a dialogue with the legislature through a result in that case uh, that was nonetheless principled and wasn't just the exercise of raw judicial power. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, yeah. I, I I think a lot of the sort of specifics are probably going to be difficult for a, a judge to sort out. Although, you know, in crafting injunctions, judges do that sort of stuff all the time. But I think the threshold question of who is a subject before the law, I'm not sure that's conceptually something that's any more appropriate to the legislature than, than the courts. Yeah, what do you think, Joe? Yeah, I'm. I'm. It. It is a. It is a deep and interesting question. Um. And and I. Uh, and my intuition is is this is the same as I think what what I heard Matthew just suggest, or or maybe I'll just claim it. So it's my intuition. I'll just claim it as my own. Okay. Um. My you know my intuition is that um, you know if you think about ju- judges simply being uh officials who resolve disputes and so uh a dispute comes before the court comes before the tribunal and so judges have to recognize uh and do all uh, in many different ways all the all the characteristics that make for the good airing of a dispute that can be resolved effectively there this is there's a harm that seems real it's not this isn't made up um I can order relief in a way that would meaningfully change the the facts on the ground. So it's uh, even even in addition to being sincere, it's also something I could actually uh, craft a remedy for. Uh, it just seems like part and parcel of that is knowing when the two parties that are in front of me, or more if there are more, uh, are are the sorts of parties who can articulate a dispute. And it seems to me that if there's a person, I mean, maybe this is too crazy a, a view of standing, but, um, you know, if especially in a state court where you don't have the the sort of federal court Article 3 limitations and concerns, if you're in a state court of general jurisdiction, look, if, if someone is willing to come in and make the argument on behalf of an imprisoned being who happens to be a non-human being instead of a human being, uh, why wouldn't I be able to make the kinds of assessments I make every day as a court about whether this is a good dispute that I could address? Well, this was the view of Justice. I think it was Justice Douglas in Sierra Club against Morton. Wasn't this is the um, an environmental yeah. case where there was a standing issue, and I, I think it was in that case, wasn't it, Matthew, where he said that he would he would find standing in the rocks and trees themselves. Yeah, was yeah. it that, yeah. that case? 
Christopher yeah, Stone should trees have standing article. Yeah, and but, I don't. I don't know that I would yeah. go. Uh, I I don't want to be attributed for multiple reasons <laughs> of <laughs> with anything having to do with Justice Douglas. Not not least his tor- his terrible patent law opinions, um, and his and his even worse antitrust opinions. Uh, but but putting that to one side, we should have a whole show about that one time. Because, <laughs> because if you want to get me on not a tirade, least of which, not least of which, because I'm sure if I read them, I could find some way to support them. And I think oh, I think the listeners tune in to hear us fight. That would be infuriating. Um, yeah. To me, yeah. um, <laughs> all, all the more reason to do it. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that could you get me on a real tirade by mentioning William O. Douglas. I digress. <laughs> um, the the um, I I don't I wouldn't need to go that far because it seems to me again in the case of the chimpanzees you're you're I, I'm gonna uh, it was the beginning of my of asking myself the question is this a situation where there's a dispute that I that I could suitably resolve using the tools I have available and it seems to me that the mere fact that the lawyer's client is a non-human being instead of a human being doesn't at least not to me doesn't knock it out of the gate in in second number one of the lawsuit i I would want to think about a lot more of the facts and circumstances that are quite detailed before i would be prepared to to say oh no this i absolutely can't bring this case that's crazy yeah i have two things to say about that first well go ahead matthew you you say okay yeah i mean i was i think in some ways that's a much more um honest way of resolving these disputes than what where where we are now i mean the idea that only humans have standing has really forced both the environmental movement and the animal movement to jump through some pretty ridiculous hoops so you know if we're bringing a case um concerning treatment of animals we have to find some human being that observes it so we can have aesthetic and aesthetic standing rather than the actual suffering of the animal and so we're sort of framing things in ways that are I don't want to say disingenuous. It's sort of the the contortions that Supreme Court standing doctrine has forced us to to undergo. But where the real heart of the controversy is not at issue, we're talking about what the human being can see rather than what the animal endures. And in some way, that sort of harkens back to the how we started this conversation, mm. um, where the interests of the animals aren't taken seriously. And so I think if we have the animal suffering mattering from a standing perspective then we're getting at the heart of the dispute rather than talking about you know what did this person go to visit this animal enough we, is that redressable if they go see the animal under humane circumstances and all these kind of ridiculous questions that we're spending an awful lot of time on in court which really aren't the heart of the dispute yeah i, w- I was going to say two things first of all um joe keeps saying chimpanzee and everybody knows that it's chimpanzee um and that's <laughs> i feel i feel so bad about it well, that's the thing well you should i, I mean i'm sitting in a shame spiral it, it is it's I not mean, easy being me it is you know chimpanzees have right to and they have the right to be called by the right name Joe. as do chimpanzees oh Thank boy you. uh the second thing is that um <laughs> that i'm un you know i'm i'm torn about this in a way because um i conceive of of law as as basically being um the the um let's how how best to say it's it's the it's it's the rules we derive that are basic to our um uh, to our cooperation so human beings you know uh, the minute they stop living in parallel on the landscape and decide to do some things together they need to create conditions of that cooperation 
And I think that developed over time, those conditions of cooperation form what we call the law. And I've got a, a more complicated theory I'm working on about exactly how that tends tends to happen. Um, but that cashes out in, in, in this regard in, in the following way, that I think that the law is meant to adjudicate um, uh, uh, human cooperation. Uh, and in that way, I think it is, um, and I'm just thinking out loud here, so I, I could be totally wrong. In that way, I think it is properly anthropocentric because it is solving anthropic problems, uh, the problems of human beings living together. That said, I think um, moral human beings living together in connection with animals will, afford, will uh, you know, uh, will accord to those animals um, certain minimal conditions of respect, which recognize that the animals are sentient beings, just like the humans are. But those animals have not directly involved themselves in our. They're not a part of our cooperative enterprise in this kind of voluntary way that we are. Again, that doesn't mean that they shouldn't have standing or there any particular limitations on their ability to bring suit. All of those are details of the legal system, but it does draw kind of a fundamental distinction between the human participants in the legal system and animals, which you think might cash out in doctrines like standing otherwise, you know. Um, but it's and- not to say that there should not be, you know, have, you know, very protective statutes or human creation saying that our group values these sentient beings um, almost equivalently to ourselves. And then we've got complicated line drawing questions to deal with there. And we're going to give them a forum by recognizing that some humans can bring actions on behalf of those, uh, of these sentient beings, uh, which will protect them in the the following ways. Um, so I, I, that's a very, you know, rough, outline of it, but it would be at least a defense of the idea that, at least in legal theory, there's a reason to differentiate between human and animal participants, but it does not say anything about what the content of the law as to animals should be. Yeah. I mean, I... I, Do you have a a response to the argument from marginal cases, the idea that there are human beings who might not, you know, contribute to this human cooperation just as animals don't maybe infants or or the you know well, certain no, disabled I, individuals i mean my my view is that that um that law develops because of the the problems that arise from human beings attempting to cooperate and 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 some of those problems involve human beings who are no longer able to speak for themselves and you have to solve that problem by saying are we just going to leave them behind are they uh, should you know should they be accorded any treatment uh any any special treatment and so in that way you know yes they're they're similar to non-human animals, but they are part of the they're part of the group that is making this um, um, that is trying to solve these uh, uh, these problems of, of coordination. But that said, I think there's a um, so, so, so the theory doesn't doesn't say that every human being in the group has to be actively engaged in in um, cooperation in the same way. It just in the same way that you wouldn't say based on your theory, you wouldn't necessarily say. Uh, well, you know, the law only applies to humans who are awake. Right. Because only they can be engaged in cooperation in an active enough sense. But what seems odd to me, or not odd, what, what's interesting to me about that way of thinking about uh, law as uh, something that arises from humans' efforts to cooperate with one another is that we actually do draw animals, other than human animals, into our cooperation 
projects. I mean, if I think about shepherds and the dogs that work with them to manage flocks of sheep, uh, it seems to me there are instances where there is plenty of cooperation going on that's trans-specific. Yeah, I, I it's... Hmm. Uh, and yeah. so, it's and, you know, the, the domestication events over thousands of years have created these situations where, you know, it's hard to undo it. I mean, we can't go back. But here we are in interdependent relationships with non-human animals. I, I guess what I'm... Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say that's that's been theorized. If I could drop a couple more names, um, there's a book called Zoopolis by Sue Donaldson and Will Kimlicka that sort of tries to conceptualize certain domesticated animals as quasi citizens um, and our ethical relationships to wild animals as being something like you know foreign nationals or something like that, uh, where they've kind of addressed some of these issues and how to come up with a, a political theory of animals um, that that meet some of these challenges yeah and and, and so it sounds very responsive the conception, to what you're saying well the conception of law that i have here about being responsive to concerns about human cooperation doesn't preclude a moral theory of um of animals uh, as having you know rights in a in a moral sense right uh um and the the or that the it also doesn't preclude the claim the claim that law should respond to those uh to those moral rights um yeah, it sounds like you're it, i mean in a way we keep coming back to the same issue that we started with which is how do you have to do you have to thread your concern through a human being before it gets vindicated yeah it's just i i see a certain amount of um because I, I think that you do because inevitably, in all of these cases, some <laughs> human being is speaking on behalf of the animal. We're making some presumption about like its basic right. needs and desires, and we can conclude that from behavior. We can conclude it from just like rationality. Uh, you know, you know, some some kind of suffering is just obvious, and we just assume that it's there. Other kinds of suffering we might have to measure. Uh, but there's always going to be a human being uh, until we get to the point where we can actually communicate with animals and invite them to become like. Uh, communicative participants in this thing, right? I mean, as you know, Joe, I mean, my, this theory that I'm alluding to involves information transfer among entities, yeah, right? So and, communication is critical. And, and and people who cannot communicate necessarily have people within that system speak on their behalf. With humans, we're comfortable with that because we all have the experience of being human, you know? Um, and, and so I think we're more comfortable assuming what what human wants are, what human desires are. I think we can do that with animals too, to um, to a greater degree than maybe many others do. Um, but I think it we can't fail to recognize that when say when the chimp makes the habeas corpus claim, that that's different than a human being who at least is making his or her own habeas corpus claim. At most, it's similar to uh, an incapacitated human who cannot communicate that claim, and so it's someone speaking on their behalf. Um, Morally, I think the chimp should be able to make that kind of claim. I think the chimp should be recognized as bearing rights in our system, meaning that there are obligations owed by humans to that chimp. I mean, that's a position that I would readily um, accept and, and uh, certainly would, would be in favor of very much stricter regulations of slaughterhouses. We could go down the list. Um, but I do think we need to recognize a certain kind of, there's a certain presumptuousness which may be justified in the fact that we are claiming that we are speaking for the chimp right i I think 
in this kind of litigation, others are accurately doing that. I think they are speaking the wants and desires of the chimp, but these are inferred, right? Um, and in that sense, the chimp is not the same as a, as other kind of communicative participants within the legal system, uh, nor directly continuous with other participants, right? The, um, and it's the latter point that is the, I think, the tougher one, the the continuity point. That's the tougher one. Yeah, that's the tougher one for the theory, but. Um, but maybe this is not a question of all or nothing. It's a question of a little more or a little less. Um, that yeah. even if law is created by humans to meet human ends, uh, one of those human ends is is recognizing the the. Uh, and this is not the same as making anthropocentric. Like animals only matter to the extent that they matter to human beings. But maybe the group of human beings recognizes the inherent worth of animals, right? And then that is part of the group plan project whatever it's doing that law is meant to coordinate. Hmm. I don't know. I, I, I think that, you know, labeling, you know, I'm teaching legal theory right now, as you know, Joe. Uh, and so we're going through the, um, uh, the analytical jurisprudence classics that oftentimes get wrapped up in labeling problems. The, what is law question? And one person has a conception, another person has a conception. They don't actually differ so much, but the labels make it seem like there's a bigger fight than there is right. sometimes, not all the time. Um, and so here too, I mean, maybe we can be concerned about a labeling problem. Like do chimpanzees have rights uh, or should there be protections? And depending on whether you label it rights or you label it, should there be certain statutory or common law protections of chimpanzees? Those may actually be equivalent. And so I, anyway, I don't want to push too far in this direction of making this big distinction between human coordination problems as constituting the law, where those humans can and should recognize the inherent worth of other animals, irrespective of their own wants. Uh, the, the human being's own wants, and a system in which humans and animals are all thought to be part of the system. To some extent, that's a labeling issue, and it obscures the underlying moral question. Um, but I do, you know, I don't know. I wanted to point it out, and I haven't really thought it through, so why not get it out on the podcast, right? Fair point. Um, I don't know, Matthew. Is that too offensive to state it in that way, or is it? <laughs> does it make some sense? Does it kind of touch on where the debate is, or, or are we talking pie in the sky here no i th- i think that's right i mean i want to I, I i look forward to, to reading what you write about this um so i'm i'm not sure you know like like you say whether there's much difference in the outcomes um and i would certainly agree that that law is a, a human construct um but i would also sort of question the idea that our legal system is is you know fully responsive to to the human as human, um, or that there's not always this translation problem. You know, we have lawyers representing clients. We don't have people raising their own claims, um, right, generally right. And, and, until they have to. Um, but there's always a, a degree of, of mediation and speaking on behalf of the other and bringing in sort of empirical questions about, you know, uh, other minds and avoiding solipsism. So, um, you is know. is that is that an idea that's in the animal law literature because that what you just raised is really fascinating right that that like even if we just restrict ourselves to like interest specific you know human cooperation problems there's always the other mind problem right that that you know it's like <laughs> you can reduce it to like is my blue the same as your color blue but we might not get like that we might just say you know but when i express myself and my desires you translate that thought into your head and you have a conception of it and and part of the part of the struggle in human cooperation is that we see the world differently 
Um, and, 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 and I guess I, I would be curious as to whether the animal law literature is kind of extrapolated that point to, um, to animals, right? That, um, there's, uh, in a way they're fundamentally different. You know, the brains are fundamentally different between different species, but that translation problem exists even within human beings. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think for contextual reasons, animal rights, people tend to jump over the other minds problem pretty quickly because it's usually used against us. Like, Oh, how do you know what an animal wants? You know, for all, you know, it's just like a, an automaton or clockwork responding in a certain way. And our response is always, well, you don't know that about other people. And so, you know, if you want to go there, you wind up with solipsism and, and go nowhere. So we tend to just kind of hurdle over that question, but I think grappling with it and, and all of its ramifications, both, um, trans-specific and interspecific is, is, um, something that that we ought to do and i think a lot of the contemporary animal ethics philosophy is starting to look at these problems of animals as others and alterity and the inability to to you know fully capture the mind of the other um i don't know how much that's translated into law um you know strategically it makes more sense to just say we all have similar minds and therefore animals ought to be treated better um, but I think there are philosophical complications there. It sounds like there are huge complications. I mean, it's, uh, um, yeah, you, you can pick any one of those steps and, and, and ask more about it. And, you know, it, it, it is the ought about being treated better related to the similarity of the minds. And, you know, there are all the kinds of things you could, you could unpack. And I wonder, um, you know, at the end of it all, you might just want to, to say that, it's observable that animals can suffer and you can deny, you know, this is, we're just going to make a judgment that certain animals can suffer and that there's a moral responsibility to eliminate suffering where we can. Um, yeah. And I think in the field of it's called cognitive ethology, which is studying the minds of, of other animals, there's been a consensus probably just in the last 10 years or so about, um, you know, minds and emotions and other animals that, that has really changed a lot and, and anthropomorphism is less of a sort of bad word. Um, and there's this understanding that, that given the commonalities of evolution, that it, it probably is the case that animals, we can make some extrapolations. Um, and, and so there's, there's Yeah. Kurt Cobain was wrong when he said fish don't have any feelings. I think is, <laughs> that's right. Uh, that, that was a study I saw recently, right? That, oh. yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, but one more thing I wanted to ask about because uh, oh, okay, I know cool. we're running a little bit long. Um, yeah, and we, we're taking an enormous amount of Matthew's time. Do you have to be very generous with us? Yes, but do you have five more I, minutes. I have as much time as you want. Oh I'm, wow, I'm enjoying the conversation. Well, so, so we, we how about two more hours? <laughs> I feel like we could just get started. I feel like I could just get going, but um, no, we'll do, just a few more minutes. I um, because I, again, looking back at some of the litigation you guys are involved in, um, and this takes us maybe a little more doctrinally and and um, and practically, but um, to what extent do you think, just as a practical matter, emphasizing information is enough to um, to change minds uh, and and ultimately change orientation, if that's the goal uh, uh, of people to thinking of animals as, as rights bearers or or or, uh, or somehow equivalent to human beings. Can you give an dimensions. example? Like well, this mean? I mean information on packaging and 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 meats and and full disclosure about what goes on in slaughterhouses or proper labeling on on egg containers about exactly 
what happened, uh, you know, how this was produced. Um, yeah, I or I guess it, access to information, fighting ag gag bills and that sort of stuff. The pre- trying to prevent people from learning what's going on in various agricultural facilities, right? Um, which is a sort of an access to information point. Yeah, just, and and I think you know the movie Blackfish has been a revelation. I mean, I think it's been unbelievably successful in changing minds about SeaWorld. But you know, in other areas of the of the law, we've we've seen like you know, well, the right solution here is to give consumers more information. If they have more information, they'll make better consumer choices. You know, whether it's in loans or it's in sales of various goods or or what have you. But it isn't always the case. You know, it's not always the case that more information is better. And and sometimes people make predictably uh, predictably bad choices when they get more information. Um, what what, how, what do you think the role of information is here? Do you think there's just so little of it, so little un- understanding? of what you know the animals that are in our food supply go through that that a little bit more information would be really helpful to to your goals or is there a certain kind of information that would be helpful or you know what's the is there a strategy here at all or what do you think yeah i mean i I tend to come at the legal system through the legal realist frame and and through the sort of critical legal studies frame, which is sort of the idea that there aren't right answers to to legal questions and the politics of, of the individual resolving the dispute invariably um, play into it. And so to the extent that we have an overwhelmingly speciesist culture, that's going to affect the ways that, that judges look at particular questions. Um, you know, and I tend to think that, that law follow social change, although it's a dynamic relationship, um, more than it creates social change. So, you know, to me, the kinds of cases that open up um, public debate more at the the zeitgeist level um, are some of the most significant cases that we do because they're changing the general cultural attitudes about animals. Um, and that, I think, is a precursor to having real meaningful success within a legal system. Um, and I think, you know, some of the gay marriage cases demonstrate that um, but that's that's know, less about right. That's less about um, forcing information disclosure on a multitude of consumer transactions. Like you have to have this label on eggs and this label, rather than right hu- deliveries of hugely impactful information in kind of tidy buckets. You know, like this litigation will make everybody aware that this is happening, or the Blackfish documentary makes everybody aware of what's going on in SeaWorld, and we'll make this big, um, you know, we'll make big news with this, that, and the other. That's certainly a way to change minds by, as you say, changing the zeitgeist. Uh, so what are the big cases that do that? I'm getting lost in some of the discussion here. What are the cases in Matthew that you, that you think are especially valuable in that way? Um, well, I think the habeas corpus cases do that um you know win or lose they're certainly open up opening up these questions about what the role of animals should be and and sometimes just asking the question is is significant um there was a PETA case against SeaWorld under the 13th amendment that got a ton of press and predictably lost at the district court level um but could still arguably be a beneficial case for changing the way we think about and talk about Animals, and then the ag gag case is, is another. Those two cases are examples of. I don't think those cases are necessarily changing the discussion, but they're sort of protecting one of the mechanisms that the movement uses to keep these issues in the public eye. So, to the extent that um, these undercover investigations at factory farms 
happen, um, they're changing the conversation about the way that animals are treated. And so when, when industry responds by trying to shut down that speech, um, I think it's significant for the movement to contribute some resources to making sure those avenues of communication stay open. But I do agree that there's a conceptual difference between these sort of um, big picture public conversation cases and uh, the the more the separate issue of labeling and providing consumer information. Um, and I think those cases are significant as well. A lot of the, um, you know, there's the, uh, there, I know there's, there's, differing views about how much information is too much information for consumers. Um, but generally when it comes to animal products and things like that, there's, there's more of a lack of information than, than an excess. So to the extent that they're reminders that, you know, meat comes from an animal, uh, <laughs> they can be significant and, and, and potentially changing behavior or at least sort of keeping, um, things in mind that might sort of blossom into something else later on. Yeah. Do you see, do you see a day when, uh, there'll be labels like on the proposed cigarette labels, which have been locked up in litigation and, and I think revised a few times with that show graphic pictures of, of lungs or, or smoking through the, uh, what do you call that little hole in the throat? It's my mind oh, a trachea- is gone. Yeah. Through smoking, the smoker smoking through a trach. Uh, yeah, like, yeah, no, it's a, yeah, go ahead. I've I've been looking a lot at, at mandatory labeling issues, and there was just a, a DC Circuit case on uh, country of origin labeling on meat products that um, was contentiously litigated, and I think there's a cert petition uh, being filed or or soon to be filed. Um, Do you know the, and that sort you of know the funny thing? You know the funny thing about that is that um, I pulled that regulation literally randomly. <laughs> Uh, to use in my legislation and regulation class as an example of a regulation, just to read it, you know, just to read through and see <laughs> how you set up the, how they do the cost benefit and they pr- go through all of the environmental, uh, um, uh, the, the environmental assessment, everything else that has so to be So it was an example it. of rulemaking, you're saying? Yeah, it was just an example of administrative, it was a notice of proposed rulemaking and I yeah. picked that out randomly among, because it was like short enough, but they went through enough steps where it illustrated it. Yeah. And it turns into a big case. What are the odds? Yeah. Neat. Yeah. What are the odds? <laughs> um, I, so my last question for Matthew is, I have this feeling, uh, and I don't know why, but I have this feeling that anim- within animal law, there's there's like a, um, a set of stuff that's about companion animals and a set of stuff that's about industrial animals as food. And that sometimes there are and wild animals. And Excuse wi- me? And, and wild animals, I think, too, right? Uh, right. I, yeah. I'm actually not... I'm, I'm saying these two things as being a big center of, of focus, these two different things, yeah. and there being tensions between them. Like, one thing pointing one way, one thing pointing the other way. I'm not sure whether... I, it's the tension point that I'm, that I'm asking about. Are there tensions there, or...? There are definitely inconsistencies. Um, you know, I, I think... There's a hypocrisy to it being a felony to do something to a dog that is perfectly legal to do to a pig, which by scientific accounts, to the extent that you accept that analysis of animal minds, those two animals are are very similar. Um, So definitely there's legal preferences given to companion animals that ought to rationally be extended to farmed animals, but but aren't. Um, I don't know if there's a, a tension. I mean, at ALDF, we certainly work on both uh, industrially exploited animals as well as companion animals. And companion animals are also 
industrially exploited. Um, you know, dogs and cats are used in biomedical research. There's puppy mills and, and animals used in entertainment, um, which are exploited. But um, I think there's, there's commonalities and there's inconsistencies. Um, is that what you mean in terms of tension or is there something no, else no, there I think, that I'm not? No, I think that was it. Um, and, and maybe it's just the difference between, um, you know, whether you, whether you start from a, a welfareist perspective or a rights perspective and, and how do those thing, two things blend together? Um, and, uh, um, so yeah, inconsistency, um, it sounds like a much more accurate term to, to try to capture the fact that the, uh, to try to capture some of the conceptual complexities. Yeah. And there, there are ways in which, I mean, companion animals sort of seem like the, the easier case, but there are ways that those lead into questions of, um, you know, animal personhood. There's, we actually just uh, filed an amicus brief in the court of appeals in Georgia on the question of valuing companion animals when they've been tortuously injured or killed. Um, and traditionally, if they were just property, you would get the market value of the animal. But given the unique relationships that people have with them, there's a push to, to sort of recognize that bond and to compensate people above market value. And that might be one of the sort of um, intermediate steps toward a more robust idea of what and who animals are um, that's still working within the, the property framework. Here's what um, I hear in tension. I mean, this is... Uh maybe this is too simplistic and you guys have already really spoken to this, but if there's a tension, it's in the fact that companion animal law is, seems to be kind of parasitic on, on our as a society, increasing awareness of, and, and love for our animals who are our companions, like all of that cultural experiences, pushing us toward recognizing our pets as people and therefore things which are like our pets to have rights like people. But at the same time, in, 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 in industrial uses of animals, a lot of people want to, you know, just close your eyes to that, right? And, and in, a, in other words, the more the law develops in, a, in the direction that the culture is moving with respect to companion animals, the more tension there seems to be with our continued treatment of animals the way we do in, in industrial applications and there and the law applicable to that. Is that what you were talking about, Joe? Is no, it? because that's not a, that's the opposite of the tension I was describing. That's oh, where you boy. would want the law to be. You'd, 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 you'd want, um, you'd be led to want more of the same thing as opposed to you, you two different conceptions of animal law that might point you to very different approaches to these very two different sets of animals. Yeah. You were actually saying what you would want them is to be more like each other, not different from each other. I was just thinking there's a tension in the way that people think about these two areas of law, because in the one in the one realm, which they uh, I think we naturally kind of divide from the other. I mean, in a lot of human minds, these are there's there are pets and then there is food. Right. And those are just different realms and that our intuitions about the one realm and legality are in tension with our intuitions about the other realm, right? There's a, there's a, there's a kind of a welfareist perspective in industrial applications, which is totally different than the way we think about our pets. Um, no, that sounds right. That, that seems to be, a, sure. I, I would think there's a tension there. And yeah. 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 I mean, but I think that can be used productively. And I know for a lot of people, myself included, um, sort of recognizing that disjunction was the first step towards remedying it. So for me, um, you know, when I was 15, I got a pet parrot 
Um, and there was a point at which I realized that, that his leg was like a little drumstick and, um, sort of making that connection that there wasn't so much of a difference between him and the chicken that I was eating, um, forced a change in behavior. And a lot of people say the same thing that, you know, once they realized how similar a pig was to the dog that they love, um, they stopped eating the pig. And, and so sometimes that tension can resolve in productive ways that rather than dragging companion animals down to the level of industrially exploited animals, we can sort of stop participating in, in industrial exploitation by recognizing how similar these other animals are to the animals that we already love and share our homes with. Let me, let me finish with one kind of personal question maybe. Um, and, and that is, you know, so a lot of people, um, it's, it's a well-known phenomenon that, that young people around the age of 15, usually a little bit later, you know, sometimes college usually become vegetarian or vegan for a while and then they stop. Right. Um, so this is like a college age experimentation kind of thing. Um, uh, at the same time that young people are more radical generally, um, uh, and, and full disclosure, I'm a vegetarian and have been for over 20 years, um, and so I, I, you know, I became vegetarian sometime around college, and uh, and and haven't stopped. Um, what, but what do you think is different, uh, Matthew? I mean, why? Y- y- I'm sure you know people too who are, who were vegetarian, you know, back in the day, and and they'll usually tell you, I used to be vegetarian or something like that. And why? Why do people? What's the difference between people who who maintain a lifelong habit of this um, for maybe a complex mix mix of environmental and, and moral reasons and oftentimes you don't want to say their moral reasons in order not to offend other people but um do, do you have a sense of like what what it was that that maybe changed in others that didn't change in you that led you to be to, to continue this um being vegan that that's a great question i i wish i knew um I mean, yeah, I guess see, that's why I'm asking you because I don't know. <laughs> I, I would be surprised if some sociologist hadn't studied this. A friend of mine, one of my coworkers, Nicole, did a PhD dissertation on um, you know what makes people go vegetarian in the first place, and I would guess that somebody has studied what makes people stop being vegetarian, um, but I don't know. I mean, I think part of it is is some of the the difficulty or perceived difficulty of, of making that lifestyle choice and to the extent that it becomes normalized and it's something that becomes easy to stick with. Um, hopefully more people will, will stick with their commitments. Yeah. And I, I think it's that, that's, what's so curious about it. it. Once you've done it for a few years, it's like, I think for most people, you realize it's not so hard. Um, as it is to someone who's maybe never been a vegetarian or vegan who says that, well, I can't do without X, Y, and Z, right? It's a very common response. I can never not eat X, Y, or Z. And the fact is you can, it's no big deal. Um, uh, but, but after you've already been, you know, vegetarian or vegan for a few years, I imagine it's, you overcome that. Um, but that sounds like a fascinating dissertation though. I'd love to, um, to hear her results. Yeah. I'll I'll, uh, see if she wants to submit it. Cool. (laughs) Well, that's uh, that's all I've got. What about you, Joe? I mean, yeah, uh, we could. I mean, we could talk for another four hours. Yeah, but we won't. Not this did time. Did we make it? Did we make it through this whole conversation without talking about the monkey selfie? Oh, oh we, my god, we oh, did. Yeah, we did. Oh, oh well, I, you know what's even more amazing is we didn't ask you about speed trap law. Um, <laughs> but, but we won't do that because the monkey selfie is a much better note to end on. Uh, yeah, it's th- just so the th- phrase "monkey selfie." 
Yeah, that you just can't stop saying because it. it could be it could be a, really could be about anything. Yeah, yeah. yeah so, Although this is a family program, so I'm not, not, I've been told I'm not how, allowed to say. How, how did things, this but. not come up? Because of course, if a monkey is a rights bearing creature, why can it not own a copyright? Right, Joe? It it it, it would. It seems to yeah. me. It would have exhibited the right level of creativity and et cetera, et cetera. Right, because you, you're worried about. I mean, I think as a society, of all the things we should worry about, it's that it's the it, it's the inefficient trade off between work and leisure that monkeys are so <laughs> so apt to. <laughs> right, so yes. you need that you need that carrot of copyright law to get the Those monkeys layabout to get, macaques. Yeah, to get the monkeys off their butts and and making useful photographs. Is that right? <laughs> um, well, what what do you think about the monkey selfie, Matthew? Um, you know, I have, I have are no you sorry background. you brought it up? <laughs> <laughs> I have no background in intellectual property. I probably fall somewhere to the left of creative commons. Um, if I'm being honest, I'm not sure I believe in property at all, much less intellectual property, much less property, intellectual property for animals. So, mm-hmm. um, well, you're yeah. outing yourself as a radical, but, yeah. um, but, but that's you're in good company because I'm on record on the show as think, saying that we should eliminate patent law altogether. Um, All right. Joe and I both agree that there should be trademark law because this protects okay. consumers, right? This seems a perfectly reasonable kind of law. Yeah. And that copyright law, although maybe it should exist, shouldn't exist for more than like 15 years. And also, I, I would, and in fact have argued um, in not so many words, that uh, c- copyright in things like snapshots uh, is, you know, not just nonsense, but nonsense on stilts. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I don't. I'd be. I don't think anyone's selfies should be copyrighted. You don't think selfies are underprovided in the market without legal protection? They so. are their own reward. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Matthew, this has been really great. So thanks for agreeing to talk to us. Um, yeah, it's my been pleasure. fun. I really enjoyed it. Cool.